This is Oren Herskowitz from Columbia Technology Ventures. I'm sorry that we're doing this as a virtual discussion instead of on stage uh, with all of you asking questions from the audience, but as you can understand, that's the best we can do under the circumstances. I'm here today with uh, Cami Samuels of Benrock and Bill Harrington from OUP, and they volunteered to talk about uh, some of these questions remotely since it's the best we can do. So first of all, Bill and Cami, thank you so much for making the time for us. I know this is crazy times under any circumstances, and so we really do appreciate it. I'm going to ask each of you to start off by giving a little bit of introduction to you, to the fund, to what kinds of things you're investing in, and also a bit about yourself. How did you end up becoming a VC in the first place, and have you found that life as a VC matches your expectations? Maybe Cami, I'll ask you to go first. Okay. That's a, that's a big question. I'll try to be as time efficient as possible. So I'm Cami Samuels. I'm a partner at Venrock, and I'll start first with the background on, on Venrock. Uh, Venrock is a 51-year-old venture firm. It was originally the venture arm of the Rockefeller family, thus the uncreative name, Venrock. And uh, we've been committed to being diversified investors in tech and broadly in healthcare uh, for the entire history of the firm. Our current funds, uh, I operate out of the private fund, which is a $450 million fund, and we also have a public fund, which is almost that same size. Um, so we have almost a billion dollars to put to work at the moment. Um, I joined Venrock going on six years ago from recent ventures where I was a managing director. I've now been a venture capitalist mortifyingly um, for almost 20 years. And on this question of how I became a VC and why, um, I'll actually start with the human side. I um, Healthcare is something I uh, feel very personally. I am um, I myself have a, luckily, a mild version of an orphan disease called Ehlers-Danlos. Um, I have a son who struggles with the complexity of developmental disorders, and both my parents were dead at age 64 um, of the biggies, cancer and heart disease. So I care passionately about healthcare, and I believe that there, this opportunity of being at the juncture of the applied um, healthcare is your opportunity to have an impact in a one-to-many way, and I've been lucky enough to have been involved in bringing a bunch of drugs and a few devices to the market um, in, in helping in whatever way I can. I see our, the role of venture capitalists as being a catalyst in that process. Um, as to specifically how I got into venture, um, frankly, I when I was in business school, I was pretty much the only kid not in the venture capital club, who didn't take the venture capital class. Um, but I, uh, at the end, towards the end of my um, business school career, read a quote from Arthur Rock, who's a venture capitalist, where he said, uh, if an entrepreneur tells me that they're here to make a bunch of money, I show them the door. If they tell me that they're here to change the world, I say, let's sit down and talk. And suddenly I realized that this thing that I was miscategorizing as being like an investment bank or something like that, venture capital, um, could really be impactful and impact the world. And that's what caused me to be intrigued by VC uh, once upon a time. And would you say, Bill, before I move to you, Kevin, would you say that uh, your last 
multiple decades in the field. Would you say that being a VC has lived up to that expectation? I mean, has it matched the reality on a sort of day by day and month by month basis? Sometimes you're chief bottle washer, there's no glamour and you feel like you're making no impact. Um, and then, uh, you know, and healthcare moves slowly, right? Uh, Trump's current aspirations that it not move slowly, notwithstanding, healthcare moves very slowly. So you day to day, you don't always feel like you're making an impact. But over this course of this 20 year career, I do have some pride of, I wouldn't say ownership, right? Because again, we're a catalyst. Um, but I, you have this pride of, wow, um, we have really impacted um, companies uh, and healthcare over and over again. And, um, and there's a lot of, um, there's a lot of long-term satisfaction in the job. Great. Thanks. Bill, over to you. Uh, thanks, Oren. So my name is Bill Harrington. I am the managing partner at Osage University Partners. We're based uh, just outside of Philadelphia. I'm a physician originally. Uh, and after college and medical school in Boston, went out to the Bay Area for postgraduate training. And as so often happens, got uh, kind of caught up in the entrepreneurial ecosystem there, started a company, was elected president of a large uh, practice, because at the time, capitation was becoming a force in the delivery of healthcare and size mattered. Um, so elected president, which was like a three-year uh, ascent to that position. So went back to business school, got my MBA at Berkeley at night. So finished my cases, change out of scrubs, drive over to Berkeley, go to business school at night. So a busy couple of years. And then uh, ended up, as I was finishing that, the venture guys that I had been working with as a casual clinical consultant changed the conversation to, have you ever thought about leaving clinical medicine and joining, you know, becoming a full-time VC? And of course I hadn't, because I had just gotten through this gauntlet of, of medical training, but did both for a year, enjoyed the venture stuff so much that I ended up um, making the transition. And I joined uh, Three Arch Partners, uh, was a general partner there for 15 years and then uh, connected uh, with uh, my partners, Mark Singer and Bob Allison out here in Philadelphia, who were starting a very novel fund based around university tech transfer activity called Osage University Partners, in an arrangement where we partner primarily through the tech transfer offices um, in an arrangement where we invest in university spinouts, utilizing the participation or preemptive rights that are part of many of those agreements. Uh, and that was almost nine years ago now. Um, we have our third fund that we're investing. It's a little under 300 million. We invest in just about everything you can imagine commercializing out of the university. Our world is divided into life science and, and not life science. I manage the life science activities, which account for about two thirds of our investment dollars. Um, most of that is in therapeutics. When you think about what comes out of university labs, it's primarily therapeutics. Not much, though some devices, uh, research tools and diagnostics, but the vast majority of the investments we make are, are in therapeutics. And then on the non-life science side, it is really broad, you know, from rockets to invisibility cloaks to cybersecurity, you know, it's anything you can imagine coming out of a university lab. Uh, and that's my story. 
and just for size and scope, like uh, roughly how many investments has OUP made from the three funds you guys have? You know, our, our, our model um, is a little different. In some ways, it's very similar to traditional venture. A uh, couple of points to make. We don't raise money from the universities. I think a misconception is somehow our dollars come from the universities or university endowments. We assiduously avoid that because we wouldn't want to have any potential conflict of interest around investment decision making. Uh, and some of our investments can be very, very small if the university's participation right is tiny. Um, so the number I think is, is a little misleading, but we have made about 84 investments now, hmm. 85. Uh, some of them are in the hundreds of thousands. Most are in the mid single digit millions. Got it. Thanks. So, you know, when we were planning on doing this at autumn in March uh, in San Diego, we had a long list of questions that were, um, I think, felt appropriately reflective and forward-looking and optimistic. Um, I think it's safe to say now that we're in roughly a week into America's experiment in social distancing and the terrible impact that the COVID crisis is already having on our economy, um, and on the health of thousands of people across the country, um, that you know, before this call, we agreed that we would probably end up focusing primarily on the new reality that we're living in today. Um, I know that within my office at Columbia, but also across the industry, one of the questions we're hearing most is, um, what's going on with VCs? How is this impacting? Um, how is this impacting the field? You know, in so many ways. It is in situations like this that that really highlight the need for ongoing innovation in life sciences and bringing new medical devices and therapeutics and diagnostics to market to be able to effectively deal with the existing healthcare challenges in the country, but also new ones that crop up. Um, on the other hand, you guys are also for-profit entities that need to be uh, keeping careful track of your cash and where you're placing these investments going forward. And so. We're going to spend a, a, a bit of time now trying to get inside the heads of what it's like being a VC in the time of COVID. And so maybe we could start off with, and Bill, since you mentioned that just before this call, you were getting off your quote unquote regular Monday partners meeting. Um, how did that go? How, how is the mood? Um, how, is, how is today's meeting different from meetings last month? Um, and you know, how are you interacting with your portfolio companies? What advice are you giving them? How are you guys thinking you're getting through this? Uh, that's a good question. Uh, you know, I'd say it was fundamentally different in, in obviously that we focused almost exclusively on, on what's going on with COVID as a consequence of COVID. Um, you know, I'll break it into two buckets. Typically, we spend the bulk of our time talking about new investments that we are in diligence on, um, you know, kind of pressure testing assumptions and reviewing what we've done, what we need to do. We still have those underway and spent time discussing those. But what was very clear is, you know, the new investment pace is slowing. People are busy with other things, uh, unable to meet in person. Um, it's hard to do this remotely. Um, and a lot of the activities focused on portfolio companies. And what was very clear is, although we've all been in touch with CEOs and management teams for the last couple of weeks, things are changing day by day for these companies. And they're trying to figure out, you know, how do they manage 
um, their burn rate? How do they husband the cash they have and the cash they're going to ask for? What can they actually do? Uh, you know, looking at the life science companies, you know, they really fall into two buckets, those that are in clinical trials and those that are preclinical. Most all the clinical trials have been paused or put dramatically on hold. Um, and for the preclinical uh, companies, most of those, at least in our portfolio, uh, are located in the Bay Area or Boston in the therapeutics arena, and both of which are under kind of lockdown. So, you know, can you get a couple of people in to make progress in the lab? Some companies are trying to do that. Some have just put everyone on hold. And that's been changing day by day. One company said, hey, we don't see this affecting us in any real way. Last week, this morning, I got a call at 6.30 in the morning. We're shutting everything down and figuring out how we're going to save the money we have. So, you know, it's, it's a little hard to know right now. I don't see it getting any better for a while. And I think companies are going to be looking at how do they reduce their burn rate to an absolute minimum during what will be perceived as a dormant period. And then on the new investments, I think one of the concerns is why would we want to invest money, new money in a company that's dormant? So some companies, we think the science is very exciting. We're, two weeks ago, we were ready to, to make an investment decision. The question now is, well, would you put your money in today and have it basically fund a company that's dormant for some number of months or quarters? Um, or do we wait? and invest at a time when they can actually put those funds to use in furthering the technology they're developing. And all of that is a, a kind of a complex matrix that is changing day by day, if not hour by hour. Right. And that's complicated too, because it's one thing if it's a company that hasn't really yet started and is pitching you for their seed or a round where if they don't start right away, you know, everyone's doing something else and there's no real impact on them. If, but if those are, companies that already raised their seed or A rounds and are now trying to raise their B rounds or, or their A rounds, um, uh, you know, a three to six month delay could become an existential threat to the company. So that's, that must be very complicated. See companies that you love and would love to invest in. And yet, you know, why would you put OUP's money into something that they're then just going to spend, you know, burn down without making forward promotion? Exactly. Yeah, that's hard. Cammy, what's it looking like from Benrock? You also just came out of a partner meeting this morning. I came out of the healthcare team meeting. I have my partner's meeting starting at 11 Pacific. So couple of, so first of all, we're so lucky to have Bill on this call. He's got tons of experience and wisdom. So anything I add is, um, is uh, mostly liking and agreeing with what Bill said. Uh, um, next Monday, I am co-leading a, strategy session where we're going to go through the entire portfolio at Venrock. And um, one of the things that might be interesting for, for your audience is that we will categorize companies in red, yellow, green. Um, green companies are the few companies that have actually more tailwinds as a result of COVID-19. So that might be a, a company that happens to have a therapeutic that might help the disease or for instance in our healthcare IT portfolio a telemedicine company might actually get tailwinds we have in our tech practice we have several companies in sort of the defense area that might in fact get tailwinds 
the vast majority of the companies will instead be in the yellow or red category. Um, the yellow companies um, will by and large be companies that have the ability to cut burn or to adapt, um, but will be delayed and will struggle. Um, and so they're yellow because we think we can see our way to them um, surviving through this crisis, but they will uh, be impacted and you need to be clear-eyed about them being impacted. Um, and then the last ones are the red ones, which are often companies that needed to raise money pronto, have a substantial burn that's hard to, to mitigate and or had to stop an important clinical study or something like that. And, um, and we're going through this exercise um, to one, understand how the portfolio overall is doing and the fund is doing, uh, but also to understand where we need to move capital around to support our companies. Um, the, you know, so overall, I would say the mood is concerned, but not panicked. <clears throat> we are still open for business for new deals. Um, and I would uh, underscore Bill's comment around uh, why would you invest in a dormant company um, with another issue, which is uh, there, there has always been a why now question when you invest as an investor, why this moment in time? Um, why not invest in the next round or so on? And if you're, a company is raising two years of capital and despite reducing risks, even if it has a chance to be operational again, is not going to see an improvement in its valuation two years hence, or you, you're not sure it will, um, that why now is a, is a bigger hurdle. Um, and so I, we are, of course, interested in seeing new deals and I'm actually my 10 o'clock is in fact a pitch meeting but um, I cannot I think that the time to putting money in is going to be really slowed down um, and companies are going to be held up to higher standards and those milestones that you achieve in whatever time period must must be really impactful and uh, the capital that you require, and this is really hard for biotech, um, must be reasonably modest um, because you don't want to, to build, you know, the saying is you don't want to build a pier, you want to build a bridge to the next opportunity. And we need to be able to be reasonably see a way to, um, in fact, see this company all the way through to the end of its capital neediness. And that's hard to do right now. Yeah, that makes a lot of sense. I mean, it's, it's a little terrifying for those of us to hear who are in the business of trying to show you guys opportunities to, to get your interest. Um, but it certainly makes sense that there'd be, uh, that you know, managing your own capital would be incredibly important. And Kemi, I think it's an interesting idea that there can be some companies that are doing great and you should continue to fuel. And there's gonna be some companies that are seriously in need of near-term cash that are still great companies and you wanna support that might take a disproportionate amount of your capital and so sort of on either end of that spectrum, you may end up being needing to reallocate your own capital. So, so let me ask a question that I've heard both, both versions of anecdotally, but I'd be interested in your perspective. So as a, as, a, as a VC yourself with your own LPs to manage, limited partners to manage, um, uh, there, there are 
one version of reality that we hear is, no, this is all committed capital. You know, our $300 million fund is still a $300 million fund. It's fully committed. The LPs are on board and that's dry powder and we're going to invest it one way or the other. We may just slow it down or speed it up or allocate it differently. Um, another version of reality is there's committed capital and then there's committed capital. And, and you know, you're going to see some VC firms that were on solid footing find themselves on less solid footing quite quickly. Um, let alone the firms that were just about to go raise their next fund and now might have real challenges. So looking so, at the VC. Yeah, this, this one is, um, sorry to jump in. No, um, please. Um, okay, so you you benefit with this conversation and having venture capitalists who've lived both through 2001 and 2008, right? And one of the things that happens is as a, a limited partner um, sees its, uh, the size of its public portfolio plummet, right? So its other assets are being repriced rapidly, um, like, you know, it's public stocks. Um, it, by mistake, becomes over-allocated to these illiquid assets like venture capital and private equity. And it puts an enormous amount of pressure on RLPs who, in fact, as we make capital calls, end up having to sell stock at 35% discount to where it was two weeks ago. Um, and so, yes, the money is there. And the VCs who are, and, and it will be there. We, um, I'm sure that Osage has as high, high enough quality of venture cap of LPs that it can count on that money being there. But if you don't show your LPs that you're shepherding their now extremely precious capital carefully, they won't be there next time. So, because they're in a lot of pain right now. Um, the results of, of what's going on are being felt by them much more rapidly than they're being felt by us. And we watched this happen um, in our prior funds, Bill and I. Um, and so shame on us if we don't immediately respond as well and let them know that we're being very careful with their now even more precious cash. Yeah, I think I would, I would echo that. Interestingly, we have a capital call underway. The money's due today. So I was uh, on the phone with our CFO, just checking on the wires and checks, and it seems like all those dollars are coming in. Yep, um, same. You know, but, but Cammie's point's a good one, is that, you know, we both have relatively new funds and so-called, so you know, lots of fresh capital, but it's fresh capital that's on our LP's balance sheets. And as of last week, it's worth a lot more to them than it was before, you know? And so every dollar I call from an LP today, it's like calling a dollar 40 last week. And Bill, I'm sorry, just because not everyone in the audience will necessarily, uh, that's because to Cammy's point, as a relative, as the rest of their public portfolio has plummeted, that dry capitals now, um, the dry powder is now worth a lot more, both proportionally and also in terms of their flexibility. Is that is that what you mean? Well, there's two issues, and 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 you know the way venture works, uh, as you know, but some may not, is that the 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 limited partners, the investors in the venture funds, pledge money to the fund, but they don't actually write the checks. And we, as VCs, reach out to our investors on a regular basis, depending on the capital needs of our firms. Um, 
for capital in the form of what's called a capital call. So, you know, you may have a five or 10% capital call that goes out, your investors then send you back five or 10% of whatever their commitment was. And we use those dollars for new investments and to run the fund. And the idea is that we don't want the money up front because the clock is ticking on our return. And, you know, we're not going to put it in the bank and the LPs don't want their money sitting in a bank. So, you know, we call it as we need it. So two problems have happened. One is, as Candy said, all of a sudden their public equity, public positions, which are marked to market, are worth a third less than they were. And they don't want to sell those because there's a belief that maybe they'll, those will come back over time, but let's not sell at the bottom. On the other hand, they have a liquidity requirement to fund these private equity and venture capital capital calls. And the thought is, where are they, where's they going to get the money to do that? And they have some of it set aside and they've planned ahead. But if they have to sell public equities to take those dollars and send them to us, they're not very happy because they're selling them at the bottom and at a deep discount. So every dollar we call is worth a lot more to them than it was before and causes them a lot more pain to send to us. So we have to be really thoughtful about what are we doing with their dollars? Can we do anything to our burn rate as a firm, let alone the company burn rates to require less capital during this period of time? And that also slows the new investment pace because the bar is just that much higher right now. Or and the only other thought to add is a, a lot of times for these limited partners, they, you know, they have a basket of investment vehicles that they invest in from, you know, commodities to, uh, to the public markets to, uh, to us. And we represent alternative investments that they think of as their highest risk and ideally highest upside potential investment area. And most of these limited partners try to keep alternative investments to you know some two percent of their portfolio some five percent some ten percent but they don't want them to be 25 percent because we are riskier and we require them to lock up their capital for 10-year funds and it's usually longer than that well so now with their public and other asset classes declining and being marked to market we are inevitably too high as a percentage of their portfolio and so if we don't shepherd their capital my goodness, when we go back out to raise money, they, they're looking for places to cut back on alternative assets at that moment. Um, and we'll, we'd be a candidate. So you really have to be, um, to signal to your LP that you're appreciative and conscious of, their, um, of the crunch that they're in uh, and be extremely careful with your dollars. And that's not to say frozen. There are the best companies in America are formed during these downtimes, frankly, um, because in the end, Bill and I are in the business of buy low, sell high. Um, so there's great opportunity too. You just have to be that much more careful. Well, it's really interesting to hear the two of you talk about this because, Cami, as you said, this isn't the first recession that that we've seen in the last 20 years. I mean, it may be a pretty dramatic one, um, both because of the cause and the impact, but uh, at least the way we've seen it, in New, you know, being a, a, a world-class university and in New York is um, over the last, you know, five years until two weeks ago, 
um, there was such a huge influx of new money and new funds being launched and people switching careers and becoming life science VCs. Um, I'm wondering what you think about as we look to the five or five years ahead, do you think there'll essentially be a flight to quality that there are the firms that have been around the VC firms that have been around and stood the test of time that the LPs are going to keep releasing their money there? Um, or, or how do you think this will shake out based on what you saw last time around? I don't think that history necessarily predicts the future in these uh, venture firms um, there or private equity firms, uh, humans and their responsiveness to this specific situation uh, predicts the future. Um, but I will say that um, we're concerned both relative to entrepreneurs in our portfolio and newer partners in the firm that they've only been in frothy times. You know, I've been calling it bacchanalian times that we've been in. And so we all need to adjust to the new reality and hope that, um, that we have the maturity to understand our context as being different. Um, and, you know, again, to just be so appreciative to still have, um, limited partners who are there to support us um, in good times and in bad. Yeah, I think the, the limited part, the, the investors, institutional investors that incorporate venture capital and private equity in their portfolio are and really should be very long-term, if not infinite horizon, long-term focused and have a lot of a lot of assets under management because, you know, as Cammy said, I mean, what venture capital is, you know, single digit percentage and you have to have a large portfolio to even entertain it. And the very best and most successful investors look at venture over a very long time horizon. Um, I share her concern that, you know, my colleagues who have joined or entered the venture ecosystem over the past five to eight years have known nothing but up and to the right. And you know, the marginal dollar that's put in a biotech company almost, you know, generates money almost every time. And they just don't quite understand how there can be structural issues that even with the best technology in the best hands, the best circumstances, uh, it still ends up, you know, running into a brick wall. And right. you know, all the three of us have lived through the biotech winter, right? And I talked to my, my team about it and they're just mystified, you know, right. talking about buggies and buggy whips. How could that be, you know, and, and how many companies have we seen in the past five years where their plan is to raise a small A, a very expensive B, and then go public nine months later. And, you know, these public markets, I think, are, are um, unpredictable to say the least going forward and financing plans. These biotech companies require enormous amounts of capital. And I think we're going to see a real shakeout um, in these medium and later stage companies that are entering the period where they really require massive infusions of capital to stay alive. That makes sense. So I want to follow up with one more question about investing during this time of COVID. And then I, I would, I also wanted to ask a question about geography, which I'll come back to momentarily, but um, the, the, at, at, so at least at Columbia, um, the university has gone under a massive seismic shift in the last week as we've, as we're trying to figure out how to adjust to the, to the, uh, to the, what's it, to the dangers at hand. 
And part of that has been sending the students home and keeping them safe and lowering the density on campus. But more recently, our university and many other universities are uh, shutting down any research labs that are not working on COVID-related research, um, both, again, to lower the density on campus and to keep the clinicians safe and to allow them to do what they need to do from a public health perspective. Um, both for, I think, a um, public interest view and also because their existing research programs were, were have been shut down temporarily, um, a huge percentage of the researchers at Columbia are now coming up with very, very creative ideas around ways that their existing research could be used to combat this, this disease, whether it's engineers getting together and trying to come up with new face shields, which is happening at Columbia, or new ways of constructing ventilators or ventilator repair parts, or data models to predict the disease's progress. Um, uh, this seems like especially at the intersection of engineering and life sciences, there's a tremendous amount of creativity fl uh, flourishing. And Kami, I think you mentioned earlier, some of the world's best companies have been formed during these crises. Um, uh, are your firms, are you, are you likely to see VC firms proactively looking at this next generation? Like, are you shifting some of your focus or some of your funds towards things that could be tagged as COVID response or COVID inspired? Or is that not yet part of any kind of investment strategy in particular? No is the answer for us um, in the sense of making new investments that are COVID response. Um, if an existing company can help the effort, um, absolutely. But the urgency of this situation combined with the practical realities that it, uh, it takes a while to go from zero to 60 in company formation means that practically, a standing start NUCO um, is really challenged to, to actually produce, in particular, a drug um, in rapidly enough to be relevant here. You know, we're either gonna get to herd immunity um, through a vaccine, which would be awesome, or we'll get there because everybody's, or 60% of the population is gonna get it. And, um, and that time frame is, is pretty constrained. Um, so I am seeing companies sort of redeploy in certain areas, but in terms of looking to invest in standing start businesses that are COVID-19 specific, that's not happening. I would, I would echo that. We, we've discussed this explicitly and, and just the time to make any kind of reasonable progress is too long to be relevant here unless you're pivoting um, and repurposing existing technology. And that's really in the world of therapeutics where the development timelines are so long. You know, you mentioned face masks and ventilator parts. And, you know, I think there, there might be some opportunity, but not really on a venture scale and for venture returns. Yeah, that makes sense. Um, when, when we were planning on doing this for the autumn audience back in San Diego, um, before that got canceled, one of the topics that, that the audience had sent, uh, people, my peers had sent questions in in advance asking if we could make sure to, make, to ask you guys about this. And one of the things that is, that is interesting about the university world, especially the university innovation world, is there's a fairly even geographic spread within the U.S. of great research universities. Um, you find them in you know, essentially almost every state. Um, and yet, 
there's a very unequal distribution of venture investments and sourcing across those universities. So both in terms of which universities tend to get the disproportionate amount of the sort of top tier VC licensing deals for their startups um, to get them going and also then where those startups go. Um, so I'm, I'm interested, there's a two part question. The first is gonna be trying to think back about what life was like in what seems like an eternity ago, but was actually only two weeks ago. Um, in terms of what role geography plays in your investment decisions in terms of deal sourcing and where you put those companies. Um, and then, and then maybe just, you could work into that. Um, well, the, the sort of the, the, the inherent question there was for those people that are either not in one of the big hubs like Boston, Seattle, San Francisco, New York, but we're between the coasts, what's the best way for them to get things to the VC's attention? Or are they just, as someone said, are they just SOL? You know, I, I, I think there's, there's two separate fundamental questions baked in, in, in there that I, uh, that I pulled out. One is that latter piece, which is if you're not, you know, in the Bay Area or Boston or New York as a university and a tech transfer office, how do you get the attention of the mainstream venture community? I think the second part, which was came earlier uh, in your question, is this issue of the companies, no matter where the technology is sourced from, often seem to set up shop in the Bay Area or Boston, at least for therapeutics. And that's Candy now, that's where we spend most of our time. So that's, I think, what's relevant here. And, and I think they're for separate reasons. And I'll take the first piece initially. And I think there, you know, the venture community is based primarily in California, Bay Area, a little bit San Diego and in Boston and to some extent, New York. Um, so those institutions, which historically have been very prolific, and one of the reasons the venture communities have grown up in those areas is because the uh, university ecosystems have been very prolific and very entrepreneurial early, particularly in the case of Stanford in the Bay Area. Um, and as those ecosystems have developed and become self-sustaining with respect to startup activity and entrepreneurship, there's just a very tight connection between the venture community and the universities. As you move beyond that, um, and that's really most of the country, you, as you point out, you've got tremendous university activity and research occurring all over the country, but very little venture attention. Um, some of the venture connective connectivity is driven by alumni. You know, if you're a Michigan alum, you may spend time in Michigan or take, get involved in their M-Track efforts. But by and large, the um, interaction of VCs with universities outside of the coast becomes very um, PI or VC specific. So for a number of us, if you're interested in an emerging area in science and you do your re read the literature and you identify a PI who's based in St. Louis, that's an individual that you may reach out to and try to get something going specifically there, but you're not gonna spend time in St. Louis looking around at what is going on in St. Louis. You're gonna go to St. Louis looking for a specific piece of technology you've identified a priori. And I think that's the big challenge for universities who are developing portfolios of opportunities where no one of those rises 
to the level that would be attractive to a VC um, and drive a visit to that university without having a predetermined reason to go. If it's a tortured way of saying it, but um, we don't go just meet with university. VCs don't spend time in the middle of the country just meeting with universities to see what they've got going on. It's just not efficient. And Cami, maybe like, are, so if you, if, if you are one of those universities in the middle of the country, if you're not a top tier institution in a startup hub, um, any tips on how to get your attention? How should these folks get things in front of, not necessarily you, but um, is there anything that, that you've seen people do well? I'd actually bill open to you too. Are there any things that you've seen uh, universities do well that have worked if you're not blessed to be, you know, Harvard, Stanford, MIT, Columbia, et cetera? couple of ideas. One is, well, so an observation and then um, some ideas. An observation is, you know, we've seeded two companies in the last year. One, all the technology came out of Stanford. We're just being stereotypical venture capitalists in every way because we're in Palo Alto. Um, the other, uh, the university is coming out of UT Southwest and we're actually um, formed a sponsored research agreement with Southern Illinois University. So definitely middle of the country um, and not uh, in the typical VC um, deal flow at all. And how did we get to um, the latter? It was um, great paper, um, right? So a, a paper that we happened to see, actually the academic did not see it this way. We saw the science addressing a specific unmet need. Um, and so, you know, what, you know, down arrow from that, how, what can universities in the middle of the country do? One, obviously published in great, get your science published in great journals and so on. Two, identify an unmet need that it could be useful for and don't have it say just cancer, right? <laughs> it has to be quite specific. Um, Three, you know, this is an idea that came to me just as we were talking. I actually have, this week, we'll close on a new seed that is just, frankly, an entrepreneur in residence who has a hunting license in a few therapeutic areas and a few technology areas that we're interested in. And my EIR is relegated to Zoom meetings right now. So in some ways, um, the changing of human habits towards these virtual meetings as opposed to the physical meetings might be beneficial to the middle of the country. Again, uh, once we process through the stasis that I think is um, largely going to exist for a little while as people come to understand the new reality, um, I think that there's an interesting change to the way Americans work that might be helpful here. Yeah. Well, that's great. That's very helpful. I know we're running out of time, so I just will say, um, I want to thank both of you for taking the time to have this conversation. I found it, you know, obviously these are scary and depressing times, I think, for many of us. Um, and, and yet, in the best case scenario, when our society moves through this, um, there will still be diabetes. There will still be cancer. Uh, there will still be the need for surgical tools. There'll still be the need for cybersecurity and other, other things and the climate um, that we've all been working on previously. And so to hear your predictions that while there'll be some temporary disruptions to the supply chain, as it were, for these startups, the venture funding. Um, 
that there is a future for venture and there's a future in particular for early stage life sciences venture is incredibly encouraging to hear. So thank you for taking the time to, to speak with us today. We really appreciate it. Or one last thought on that, you know, biopharma has been, you know, this over the last year or two seems to have become big tobacco, right? <laughs> the, the industry that everyone loves to beat up. And now suddenly the world is appreciating biopharma. So big picture, there is reason for optimism. Right. It's true. Great way to well, end. Yeah. Thanks guys. Talk to you soon. Thank you. Bye-bye. Bye. -bye. Bye.